Good evening, 003. The following is for your ears only and is classified above top secret by Her Majesty's Secret Service. Less than 24 hours ago, our contact with the We Can Make This Work, probably, podcast network intercepted an encrypted audio message sent over social media regarding the upcoming season of Podcasters Assemble. According to our intel, the podcast network is looking to recruit field operatives from around the world to reminisce about the Daniel Craig Bond movies, Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, Skyfall, and Spectre. In a countdown to the latest film in the franchise, No Time to Die. Your primary objective is to infiltrate Podcasters Assemble by recording and uploading your submissions at probablywork.com. Utilizing a two-way communications device with a built-in microphone, the latest from QBranch. In addition, MI6 believes that the first episode is going to be an overview of the series as a whole, showcasing everyone's favorite and least favorite Bond movies, Bond actors, Bond villains, secret layers, cold opens, vehicles, and gadgets from the franchise's history, and more importantly, your background with these films. We're all counting on you, 003. Assemble. Podcasters assemble. Episode 1, The Best of Bond. Eric Slater here from Epic Fails of History. Hey everybody, this is Chris from the Comic Zombie Podcast. My name's Phil. I'm from the Audio Only Experience Podcast. Hi, I'm Keith. And I'm Andy. And we're the hosts of Tune In. Hi, this is Justin Aki, graphic designer and one half of Significant Otter Co. Hello, fans. My name is Jasmine. You may remember me from episode four of Epic Fails History, the podcast. I guess we're going to be talking about James Bond, 007 himself today. They say you never forget your first. I'll be honest, I got my first exposure to James Bond from Roger Moore. I must have seen Octopussy 30 times as a kid. It was always on TBS, and I watched a lot of other TV. I'm pretty sure I saw Live and Let Die a few times as well because of that, but I eventually went back and saw the entire series multiple times. So looking back on James Bond movies, there are a lot of them. And to be perfectly honest, I don't think I've seen every single one of them, but I have seen most of them. So there's the 25th one is coming out. I would say I probably haven't seen any less than 18 to 20 of them. So I, I feel like I have a pretty fair you know, idea of what's good and what isn't good in the James Bond movies. I've kind of caught them on and off, flipping past AMC on like a Saturday afternoon. I know I've like I've definitely seen one or two. I I remember going to the movie for the one with where Madonna did the the song. But I don't yeah. remember anything about it except that they had like those floaty things with the fans on the back of them for the swamps. So I think it's safe to say that I've been a fan of Bond since I first saw Goldeneye on VHS as a kid and 
this was right before the Nintendo 64 game came out, if I'm remembering this correctly. But not long after that, the first one I actually saw in theaters was Tomorrow Never Dies. And I ended up slowly watching them all, either by renting them from the video store or catching them on TV whenever there was a Bond movie marathon, which happened about once a year throughout the 90s. I've even uh, read a few of the books, and while I appreciate the source material for what it is, the movies are definitely where it's at. I grew up in a, in a very much 007 household. Uh, it was just a go-to, like, family good time, no matter, really no matter what bond was there. And uh, something, you know, a lot of kids grew, grow up with James Bond being on in the summertime. And there's, you know, the doldrums, you're a kid, there's, there's not a whole lot going on. But all of a sudden, these Bond movies come on TV out of nowhere. And it's, it's weird. It doesn't matter if you've got three channels or if you've got 200 channels. Uh, all of a sudden, there's these Bond movies are on on a regular basis throughout your summer. And you're watching them and you're just entranced. It was never really my favorite thing growing up. You know, I tended to gravitate more towards kind of straight action movies. You know, your Terminators, your Aliens, your Predators, Die Hard stuff like that it was kind of more my thing uh, than um, James Bond was but I always kind of dug him you know I, I prefer maybe a, a born but still a fan I think one thing that's worth pointing out is that the Bond movies are very much a product of their time and there's a lot of pros and cons that come with that as someone who's interested in history and society throughout the decades, it's a unique look into the fears, hopes, politics, fashion, and unfortunately some of the prejudices of the time through the lens of pop culture. In the early 60s, Bond started out as an anti-communist Cold War hero, fighting secret Russian bad guys with sinister plans for world domination. In the 70s, things got weird. And by the 80s, Bond was trying to stop tech company CEOs with diabolical satellites and evil microchips. And the Bond movies of the 90s were very, uh, 90s. Um, in the Daniel Craig films, we see a post-9-11 world. In these newer films, the series has definitely been influenced by the surveillance uh, state mentality. Bond traded uh, punching Soviet spies in the face to taking on very real world terrorist organizations and in the process the series really matured while in the real world it seems like the stakes have never been higher in the bond movies in a lot of cases the stakes have become way more personal but then there's other there's there's simple simpler and stripped out bond films casino royale GoldenEye and For Your Eyes Only that are a lot less glitz and glam and more just like spy awesomeness and they're just tremendous Bond films in particular my forte is in African American history but that also crosses over with um, African American cinema so when Eric Slater invited me to this podcast, I thought it was fascinating that we have an African-British actress who's going to potentially be the new Bond. And as we were talking, I admitted to him a confession. You see, I've never actually seen a James Bond movie. Dun-dun-dun. But 
Uh, when I was working in D.C. as a park ranger, I had the joy of visiting the International Spy Museum. And so uh, one of the exhibits that they have there focuses on the Bond movies, and it's a very interactive exhibit. Uh, you may be familiar with it because they have one of the James Bond cars. So one of the things that I really loved about the exhibit was it actually talked more about the history of spies and espionage. And uh, for my own family, I, I have connections to that too. Dun 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 dun. Um, my grandfather, his brothers, and friends tried to join the United States Army, but the military said that as Japanese Americans, they were considered to be um, citizen combatants. Then, the, about the next year later, the military said, Haha, just kidding, we don't know anybody who actually speaks Japanese. So from there, when I was at the International Spy Museum, it was great to actually get more of an understanding about some of the experiences that my grandfather may have experienced. So I'm curious to see um, what the James Bond movies themselves actually talk about with the history of spying. Now, it's worth acknowledging that for all the cool gadgets, explosions, and title sequences, this series hasn't always been the best at portraying women, or minorities, or alcoholics for that matter. There's definitely more than a few cringy moments, uh, especially in the earlier films. However, I do think the newer films, especially the Daniel Craig movies, have really done a good job overall of handling it by subverting those tired old tropes. Casting Judy Dench as M and turning Felix Leiter into Jeffrey Wright were also good steps in the right direction. And then, of course, with the rumors that Lashana Lynch uh, might actually be replacing Bond as 007 in the, in the newest film really seems like a, an exciting and bold new direction for the series. My additional interest with this is because I do look at cinema from the perspective of multiracial, uh, African, Japanese, Chinese, Dutch American historian from a female point of view. I love looking at cinema as a public historian because cinema really will tell you about what people are thinking at the time, um, where they, how they interpret the past and where they think we should be thinking about for the future. So a really good example of this was back when the Hunger Games movies came out and there was a huge backlash with the character by the name of Prue. Uh, so what happened was people did not read the books closely enough and they were shocked to find out that Rue was African American, even though in the books it straight up says that her district is in the South Carolina region. I don't know if you know this, but South Carolina has a huge black majority. In fact, there is a book that I'm going to plug right now. It's called Black Majority by Peter Wood, and it's all about the Stoner Rebellion. What was interesting as a historian was that this was right also when uh, President Obama was coming into office. So I think that as, um, from a historical viewpoint that that affected how people were viewing the cinema because they were also reacting to that and to the Great Recession as, as our generation knows it. So, you know, we could talk about probably the most popular argument among 
fans of the franchises, which is the best Bond? Which actor is the best uh, at portraying James Bond? Now, for my money personally, I got to go with Daniel Craig. Part of that is because I think he's awesome. He's a great actor. Uh, he can pull out the physicality of the role really well. But part of that really is the quality of the films that he's in. It's just significantly better than the vast majority of the other ones. So he kind of gets a leg up there. Uh, short of him, I would say my favorites. <laughs> Probably just because of like, you know, I don't have like a Connery or a, a Pierce Brosnan or whoever. I don't really have a, a lean there. I would say I like Brosnan and Goldeneye and I like Timothy Dalton and License to Kill. I know I'm in the minority on that one, but I dig the guy. What can I say? So, realistically, everyone's going to talk about, you know, your classics, your Moors, your Conneries, your George Lazenby's. Someone has spoken about Lazenby, right? Even though Lazenby only had a chance to do one movie, I actually think that Honor Majesty's Secret Service is one of the best of the classic Bond movies. I especially like the, uh, spoiler alert, tragic cliffhanger ending in that one. Some of them are so disappointing on a couple of levels. Um, it might be Honor Majesty's Secret Service because George Lazenby, that was his only Bond film. Alright, I'll come back to that. <laughs> I'm here to give some love. To the man, the myth, the legend, the Dalton. So when it comes to Bond actors, I really enjoy the way Sean Connery's version is always getting his ass handed to him. Uh, he always manages to pull through that at the last minute with like a charming smile and some witty one-liner and, and a thick Scottish accent. My favorite moment uh, has got to be uh, during Thunderball. Uh, there's there's this big like party going on and. Sean Connery grabs onto this redhead. He was trying to kill him. And they're dancing. She's like, I'm going to kill you. And the sniper is in the crowd and he shoots. And just as he shoots at Bond, Bond flips the broad in his way in the bullet's path. And she gets shot. And uh, she's, she's dead. Yeah. And he sits her down at this table full of people. And he goes, hey, do you mind if she's your chair? She's just dead. Now, although Goldeneye might be one of my all-time favorite Bond movies, uh, Pierce Bronson, at least in his other three movies, came across as way too perfect and a little unbelievable in those ones. If I had to pick one, though, it would have to be Daniel Craig, hands down. Uh, I really like how he plays him as a broken and flawed person. Um, when you look at Daniel Craig, you believe that he's killed people before. Um, not that that's the reason I like him, but... You can at least believe he's not to be messed with. All right. So with that in mind, I guess just to kind of get it out of the way, my favorite uh, Bond, like I said, Daniel Craig, second place, I probably have to go. I mean, you probably have to give it to Connery, but my personal favorite would probably be Brosnan in Goldeneye specifically. Uh, least favorite... I mean, it kind of has to be Roger Moore, right? I mean, it's just not that I dislike Roger Moore as an actor or anything, but those movies are pretty bad and he doesn't really do anything to help him. So I'll go with him as my least favorite. Uh, Least favorite, Roger Moore. Enough said. Um, And it's funny because when you grew up, uh, the the uh, Pierce Bronson movies were coming out pretty hot and heavy and they were really geared towards like bringing in the young viewer. They had a lot of pizzazz and flash. Which one's the one with Pierce Brosnan in the tank? I'm going to call that my favorite. Because I like that scene where, like, everything crashes on him. He just pops back up. He's still all dapper in his suit and, and stuff. 
The character himself has really evolved quite a bit depending on the geopolitical uh, landscape. You can see how the movies themselves have really been influenced by the uh, the news of the time. In a lot of ways, GoldenEye was about the fall of the Soviet Union. Tomorrow Never Dies was all about uh, the internet. The World is Not Enough was all about oil. Die Another Day was about Korea. Casino Royale was about stopping a terrorist attack and economic catastrophe. But not only that, you can also, if you look at the movies from like a film standpoint, you can definitely see uh, a lot of a lot of changing trends. While yes, uh, most of the Bond movies are very formulaic, it's kind of interesting the things that do change in each of the movies. Now, Timothy Dalton is my favorite Bond which seems to be no one else's favourite Bond. But I grew up loving Timothy Dalton, and uh, especially The Living Daylights. I think Living Daylights is probably one of the best, like, action films out there. It has such a great sort of overarching plot line going from beginning to end. It's never too complicated. It's never too basic. It's not too silly. It still has silly elements to it. It's just perfect. It's uh, it's everything Bond should be. And it's just one that everyone should go out and watch. Living Daylights, beginning to end, is amazing. You know, uh, his second film, Licence to Kill, it's pretty good. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's on the same level as Living Daylights, but it's pretty good. I tend to get the two Dalton movies mixed up, but I remember Licence to Kill being really good. That's the one with the action scene with the truck, right? Well, it might not be as famous for its kills as, say, like a Friday the 13th or something like that. There are some really creative and really cool ways that they kill people off, and some ridiculous. For my money, the best kill in the entire series is in License to Kill. Uh, again, sorry to go back to the same one, but it's Dario, played by a young Benicio Del Toro, of all people. There's like an industrial cocaine shredder, which, you know okay which is previously shown to be used to shred like large quantities of cocaine into smaller powder quantities um it's kind of stupid they've got bond chained up to like the slow moving conveyor belt moving towards this thing because of course why not just throw him in there whatever um so while he's on there uh, dario climbs up on top of the conveyor belt to kind of get in some unnecessary shots and take some kicks and punches and for no reason at all. It's so stupid. Uh, and Bond, of course, gets a hand free and yanks him down into the shredder, and like this bloody mist just goes everywhere. It's pretty disgusting. Um, and uh, you know, again, because of the, I think the movie came out when I was at the right age, I, I was that was awesome for me, and I really dug that. And uh, the scene where the uh, the guy gets like crunched up in the cocaine making machine. Still haunts me to this day, to be honest with you. It's probably one of the most violently graphic deaths ever in a Bond film. And I always remember thinking when I was a lot younger that, yeah, man, this film's a 15. It's the only 15 Bond film, uh, up to my knowledge of that point. <laughs> um, God knows, I don't know, Skyfall or anything was a 15, but yeah. Yeah, man, it was uh, horrific stuff. There's so many good kills. I mean, when Mr. Big gets killed, that's a thing. The movie License to Kill which was Timothy Dalton's second and last movie where he kills the, the bad guy, uh, Sanchez, Robert Dobby, who just eats and chews up every bit of screen time. I think he like puts a, 
puts the car, this the semi truck, with a tanker of of gasoline that that somehow has got cocaine in it, and and knocks him off the cliff, lets him go, and so this not only does he fall to his death, is in a truck accident, but then a tanker truck full of fuel also goes and just just boom. I gotta go with the the crushing a person with your thighs. What a what a strange way to kill someone. Well, not exactly a favorite kill, but kind of a favorite moment related to a kill was Zugyoski freeing Bond with his last shot with the cane gun in The World Is Not Enough. It was a poignant scene played wonderfully by Robbie Coltrane, also known in the rest of the world as Hagrid. But yeah, Tim Filton killed 22 people in his time as Bond. And yeah, Living Daylights, amazing film. So, choosing a favorite Bond movie is kind of tough. I've definitely seen them all multiple times. I guess I'll start by narrowing down my favorite from each era. Goldfinger is by far Sean Connery's best, and it mostly still holds up. Roger Moore is probably my least favorite Bond, uh, because he's just way too cheesy. Uh, And also, um, by the end of his run, he was getting a little bit old to, uh, to still be doing it. Yeah, it it got awkward. I will say, though, I do like him in For Your Eyes Only. Uh, Especially that cold open where he finally gets revenge on Blofeld for what happened at the end of Honor Majesty's Secret Service, like 15 years later. Um, Goldeneye, hands down for Bronson. And for Craig, uh, it's always been a toss-up between Casino Royale and Skyfall, which are, for my money, definitely at the top. I'm tempted to give it to Casino Royale um, as a really solid love story. It's a really great movie. The action beats are excellent. But I think ultimately Skyfall is just a better movie. It's got an amazing villain. It's got a perfect story arc for the character. It incorporates all of the best elements from uh, the franchise's history. And it's just gorgeous. Sam Mendes is such a good director, and it really shows in that one. But we'll talk about that more once we get to uh, our review of Skyfall. Favorite movies prior to the Daniel Craig ones. Uh, my favorite is probably still Skyfall. But prior to the Daniel Craig ones, my favorite probably going to be Goldeneye. Honorable mention goes to License to Kill. I know it's not anybody's favorite movie. Uh, I think it was probably because I... If I remember correctly, it was the first one I saw in theaters, but I do like Dalton, and it has some really cool stuff, especially the villain who I'll get to. But, it, you know, I like it. It's, it's kind of an action-ish, you know, kind of generic action movie, I guess, but it doesn't really scream Bond so much, but maybe that's why I liked it when I was younger. For most people, their favorite Bond movie comes from who their favorite Bond is, too. And um, it's not that I don't like like Daniel Craig, I think he's just been fantastic as Bond and much needed after Pierce Bronson. But Pierce Bronson was a fantastic Bond in his own right. Um, these guys just kind of give it their all. And, uh, you know, my favorite Bond is probably going to be Thunderball. It's got everything. It's got the, the rods, it's got bullets, it's got Bond. <laughs> in that, the end scene spoiler alert when they have uh, the navies dropping in frogmen to attack and kill Largo's under underwater guys 
And I mean, this this underwater spear fight that is is acted out when we're children in every freaking public, every swimming pool. How do you just go? You you can't go wrong with that movie. Timothy Dalton is a criminally underrated James Bond. He's funny, smooth, suave, handsome guy, if I don't say so myself. And yeah, he's just got absolutely everything. I think it's a huge shame he only made two films. Like, like I went on a lot about Living Daylights because it's just so good. It's just such a good film. But Licence to Kill is still a very, very good film. There's like a weird cultist thing going on in there. It's Salaman, the bad guy, who he manages to fight at the end and he like sets him on fire. It's so, so good. And that's got some classic one-liners in it as well. And he's just such a good Bond. I wish he'd made more, uh, especially considering like Pierce Brosnan was, apart from Goldeneye, love Goldeneye. The rest of Pierce Brosnan's films are an absolute shit show. My favorite uh, Bond song or opening sequence is probably this one's tough, but I'm gonna I'm gonna give it to uh, Chris Cornell's "You Know My Name" from Casino Royale. Not only is that song awesome, it, it really like jazzes you up, but that whole opening sequence is so great and it's very very James Bond. But yeah, we'll talk about that next week. So yeah, definitely the Casino Rail opening followed closely, though, by Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And honorable mention to the Duran Duran song from A View to a Kill. Favorite theme song was definitely A View to a Kill. God-awful movie, but you can't go wrong with Duran Duran. Uh, followed by, say, Live and Let Die. It's just an earworm, gets in your head. Uh, I'll listen to it every once in a while. And I'll wrap that up with, I used to own the CD of all the music, and I played it on repeat multiple times. This was before Casino Royale, so it didn't have Chris Cornell's You Know My Name. Fantastic song. So what's so good about The Living Daylights? I hear you ask. <laughs> so the film opens up, as most Bond films do, where you get your little sort of, um, your, like the Bond preamble, is it? Something like that? Where Bond's just doing some sort of weird little mini mission. And Bond's actually doing a training exercise on the island of Gibraltar where he's trying to infiltrate a a British uh, military base. And it all goes wrong and he gets attacked by other people. And it's just amazing action scenes. And the bit at the end where he drives the car off the cliff with the guy in it and sets the car, like, all the stuff in the back of the car is about to explode and he just opens his parachute, which then just flies him out the back of the car and you watch the car fall away off the cliff beneath him and explode into a ball of flames. It's so good. So good least favorite Bond movie. Oh man, there's some really low-hanging fruit here. You know, I think the I think the most common answer, and rightfully so, is going to be Moonraker. And I could not possibly disagree with that. However, I will throw out at least a tie, or maybe a 1A, uh, and that's Die Another Day. Just absolutely <laughs> absolutely terrible. Screw that movie. Uh, so my least favorite Bond movies, uh, there's a lot of bad ones. Uh, it's kind of hard to rank them. Um, most of the Roger Moore movies are definitely towards the bottom for me, at least live and let die octopusy moonraker. 
Um, I'm not a huge fan of Diamonds Are Forever, especially because it kind of ignores the tone of Honor Majesty's Secret Service. It brings Connery back. It just kind of feels weird, you know, out of place. Uh, speaking of Connery, uh, Never Say Never Again, I know that's an unofficial Bond movie, but it's, it's, not, it's not good. I do have a love-hate relationship with A View to a Kill. Uh, if viewed as a comedy, it's kind of great, but I would not recommend it as an introduction to the Bond franchise. Because, dear God, so many reasons. I do like Christopher Walken as the bad guy, though. Ooh, favorite ally? I'd have to say Willard White, because he's a CEO looking for adventure. I mean, Diamonds Are Forever was a bad movie, but it also had Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd, two of the worst and best henchmen in the entire series. And for not being a good movie, Charles Gray as Blofeld was a pretty good play. Good return for the actor playing a different position. That's always kind of fun. Uh, actually, for not liking the movie... There weren't a ton of standout parts in it. But I do get kind of a kick out of some of the henchmen. I think some of them are really cool. And of course, some of them, they just try to make them noteworthy and they're just weird. Like, I don't know if you'd call him forgettable. He's certainly bad enough to be forgettable. Maybe you remember him like I do for being just awful. And that's Zhao from Die Another Day. He's the guy that literally has diamonds in his face. Like these crystal blue uh, irises in his eyes from like genetic manipulation or something. It's just so bizarre, and it makes no sense. Uh, he's primarily just used for like lame puns and jokes, and he does pretty much nothing other than look just ridiculous. And it, it's—I mean—he looks like he belongs in like the Double Dragon movie or something like that. It's really horrible. So I would say that he's probably my least favorite. No, no, I, I wouldn't say probably. I would say he's definitely my least favorite. Wasn't there a guy that had like a blade in his hat and he threw the whole hat? best henchmen uh everyone always talks about jaws but for my money it's odd job all the way uh special shout out to uh red grant in from russia with love my favorite henchman is probably red grant he was an interesting counterpart to the just emerging james bond in his second outing i mean in the movie he was in from russia with love the plot was to blackmail james bond with a sex tape and then kill him to embarrass the country we've put world leaders into power in spite of those kinds of tapes but for some reason, the thinking assassin just got to me. Uh, they had good conversation. Just knowing something Bond didn't was kind of fun watching it on the screen. Also of note, the gadget in that movie was a briefcase with a knife, a tiny rifle, and some backup gold. Uh, just a change from what we've done recently. <laughs> My favorite is really weird. Uh, it's from Live and Let Die, and that would be Baron Samedi. He was like this, you know, voodoo witch doctor dude. He's got like the... Uh, uh, Papa Jango look, you know, with the, the skull face and the black grease paint and top hat and all that. Uh, super cool. Really dig the guy. He looks awesome. He's very entertaining in the screen time that he does have. Honestly, he probably doesn't belong in the movie at all. I, I think you can cut him out completely and literally nothing changes whatsoever. So why even be there? Uh, other than just to draw attention. <laughs> but, you know, maybe not the best reason to put a character in the movie. But I can see them having him on there and going, like, well, we can't cut him. He's just so ridiculously cool. Um, but yeah, I, I really dig him. Uh, I would watch hours of him just walking around talking to people and being weird. My favorite love interest, Diana Reagan on Her Majesty's Secret Service. She's just classy. Reminded me a lot of Audrey Hepburn. Following that, I also had a crush on Barbara Bach from The Spy Who Loved Me. Wasn't a good movie, but honestly, doesn't hurt that Carly Simon did the song for that movie. So 
so moving on to the Bond villains. We'll go worst first. I keep picking on this movie, but it's because it's a pile of crap. And that's uh, Gustav Graves from Die Another Day. <laughs> Sorry, my cat's sneezing. I don't know if you can hear that. But this dude has an origin story worthy of the 1990s X-Men. I mean, it is crazy. Uh, he's a North Korean colonel who had his face changed via gene therapy. And I cannot stress hard enough how hard I'm doing air quotes when I say gene therapy. Uh, basically, he gets his face changed to look like a white British dude, uh, which is just ridiculous. But then he fights to what uh, his, his whole plan is he wants to wipe out like Seoul, most of Japan. And uh, it's just it's, it's just so stupid. All right, so if his plan isn't stupid or bizarre enough, he also has to spend like the whole third act in the movie in this like just ridiculous Power Rangers looking outfit, uh, so that he can harness the power of his Doomsday satellite. Uh, and it's just I mean it's just so freaking stupid. I mean there's no way to take him seriously whatsoever. He loses any dramatic tension he possibly could have had in the movie. Of course at that point it'd been long squandered, but he's just worthless. As far as my favorite villain plot, uh, while I kind of have a soft spot for the overly complicated and ridiculously over-the-top plot in Die Another Day, I actually really like Goldfinger's scheme to irradiate all the gold at Fort Knox in order to increase the value of his own stockpile. While there's a ton of plot holes when you really think about the specifics for a minute, it's also kind of genius. Oh man, so this is probably a little, a little goofy. But it's in Moonraker. Um, Jaws, probably one of my favorite villains. And he's in The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. Jaws is a gigantic human with metal teeth. And he bites shit. And that's what he does. Um, There's... He bites through this cable... Uh, a cable car cable in order to kill Bond and Bond like escapes. Right. And there's just all this damage and destruction. And um, and I know, you know, there's not a lot of people who think that there's a lot of people who think that maybe the spy who loved me and Moonraker kind of just started jumping the sh- <laughs> the proverbial shark. Right. As, as a Bond movie. I mean, hell, in Moonraker, they go into outer space. Right. And there's a laser gun fight. But there's this scene. Jaws is kind of dejected from not being able to kill Bond and he looks over and there's this like petite little gal with pigtails just staring at him in love and she's all kinds of awkward and he's all kinds of big and awkward and well what a moment I think Quantum of Solace's Dominic Green was the most serious and realistic villain and his plot was basically to screw over a country for profit the United States has done this it's literally happened they even had Chief Hopper from Stranger Things playing agent of the US government Helping the villain to go forward with the regime change. I also like Dominic Green because looking back now, he's like an evil Elon Musk. Or for some people, just Elon Musk. Ooh, favorite is tough. There are some really, really great Bond villains. Um, really famous. You know, I think a lot of people are going to say Goldfinger, and I couldn't possibly argue with that too much. But uh, I'm going to go with and I'm probably going to mispronounce his name, but Alec Trevelyan from uh, Goldeneye, 006. To me, the best Bond villain uh, to date has been 006, played by Sean Bean. You know, first of all, Sean Bean, right? Ned Stark? So, of course he dies, obviously. That's a, that's a given. I'm surprised he made it through most of the movie. 
Um, but I always thought the idea of using like a 006 was cool. That, you know, it's not just 007, there's a 001, 2, 3, 4. I thought that was sweet. Maybe like the higher up they go, maybe the better the rank. So it'd be cool to see like 001, although maybe that's just M. Uh, I don't know. Some people are probably rolling their eyes so hard right now. But anyway, uh, 006 was super cool. Uh, he, the fact that he's in like a really good Bond movie doesn't hurt, and that he's a good actor, of course. Uh, but having him be like a double O that betrays Bond and MI6 was awesome and it really gives him like a lot of gravitas and, and he kind of comes, you know, he's an actual threat to Bond. They're equals for the most part. It's pretty good that he doesn't have to, you know, mow through a f just this minefield of like faceless goons and then some henchman with like a special quirk like, oh, he's got like a pink watch. Um, you know, dude's legitimately badass. But the fact that you know he's got this betrayal aspect and he knows their secrets kind of thing uh, kind of gave the relationship between Bond and the villain uh, some real stakes and some real personal touch that you don't often get in these films uh, and, it, and it's really nice. it was nice to see and it kind of I think one of the reasons the movie stands out to me is I think the villain is just really good uh, I'd like to see more kind of stuff like that you know having to hunt down rogue agents or whatever um, although I guess that's kind of what Skyfall is about too so anyway I think Silva from Skyfall would definitely be a runner-up, though. Oh, shout out to Joe Don Baker, Mr. Jack Wade himself. Hey, Jimbo! That and the fact that Bond hated and respected him, because the U.S. government bankrolled pretty much whatever he wanted. Everyone gives Felix points for being an equal to Bond, but nobody got under his skin like uh, Jack Wade. Uh, I would love to say for ally uh, would be felix but i mean there's like a different freaking felix every other movie and sometimes he's cool looking sometimes he's like a geriatric old guy <laughs> uh i think sometimes he's black sometimes he's a woman when it comes to secret layers i do like dr no style but it has to be dr evil's i mean blofeld's giant secret volcano fortress in japan from you only live twice Oh, and the Steve Jobs lookalike from Tomorrow Never Dies had a cool submarine, I guess. The layers. Oh my gosh, secret layers. I mean, hollowed out volcano caves are the only place I want to launch my evil enterprises. Out of the entire series, my favorite 007 moment is probably the cold open in Quantum of Solace. Uh, when he chases down Mr. White, uh, car chase is great, gets out. It just... Mm. If you watched Casino Royale and it back-to-back, -back, it's just justice. Oh, and while it's not my favorite movie, the ninja scene in You Only Live Twice was fantastic. A full-out war between the two armies, villains, and Japanese ninjas that eventually inspired one of the best Simpsons characters ever, Hank Scorpio. Favorite car? This one's kind of easy. Uh, it's got to be the tricked-out Aston Martin DB5 from Goldfinger. Oh, and Skyfall. Just that whole action scene with the... Uh the smoke screen and the oil slick and the ejector seat, the machine guns and the headlights. Oh man, it's so awesome. And on top of all that, it's classy. And the car was in several films, but I mean, one, the, the iconic look of the vehicle, plus it had, you know, machine guns and rockets and caltrops and oil slicks and an ejector button in the, oh, it was great. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was in love with the DBS from Casino Royale. It's been a few years since the last movie, and I forgot how sexy the car was. Also, when the movie came out, I was driving a 350Z with the same color, and they made a DBS body kit for it. Uh, I'm kind of glad I didn't buy it at the time, but thinking back, I would have been the coolest kid at community college. 
I don't really have a whole lot of an opinion on the cars or even the Bond girls for that matter. You know, they're all they're all cool in their own way and some more so than others, but I don't think I have a favorite or at least favorite. They're just kind of there for me. So my favorite Bond girl or woman from a character standpoint, I really like Eva Green's Vesper Lynn. Uh, but if we're just talking looks, uh, Xenia Onyatop uh, is probably towards the top. Of course, one of the most popular uh, uh, shticks or whatever that the Bond franchise does is the gadgets. And you have some really cool ones, uh, usually involving... Uh, hidden uses for everyday objects like shoes or watches or whatever um, and some that are just kind of ridiculous but uh, I would say my favorite is of all things from Tomorrow Never Dies which is by no means a good movie but I kind of dug the remote control BMW uh, and the fact that the uh, the controller itself could be used as like a phone and a taser and all kinds of stuff but I thought it was cool that it was like a fully automated uh, controlled car I thought that was pretty sweet uh, honorable mention goes to the exploding pen and Goldeneye. I don't know why I'm like a Pierce Brosnan thing, but when Alan Cumming is spinning the pen around and clicking the end of it, you know, out of like a nervous tick, and you see Bond kind of keeping track of how many clicks have been in the pen. I thought that was a really cool scene with a little bit of tension. You know, moving away from the good ones, the worst one for my money is oh god, it's so bad. It's in a terrible, terrible movie. Not just a terrible movie, uh, or Bond movie, but a terrible movie, period. And that's Die Another Day, and it's the invisible car. You know, I don't know if they were trying to do a Wonder Woman invisible jet thing, or, or if they just thought it would be cool if like he could drive and no one could see him, but there's so many problems with an invisible car that I don't even want. It's just ridiculous. Uh, you know, Q Branch really phoned it in on that one, I think. And then the film culminates with like a really good scene where he's fighting the bad guy in this like weird sort of mini museum to wars where there's like those little mini <laughs> mini war sets going on uh, and he kills him by uh, whistling uh, Royal Britannia which uh, sets off Bond's keychain which uh, sets some like weird stun gas in his face and he shoots him <laughs> so good uh, favorite gadget in a series full of gadgets from the very real Cold War era spycraft of From Rush With Love to the super cheesy over the top invisible car and die another day. Gadgets are definitely one of the most iconic aspects of the series. I don't know why, but I always love the gadgets in GoldenEye, specifically the laser watch and the exploding pen. Sure, they're impractical and probably more of a liability than they're worth. Like seriously, how does that even work? But there's few gadgets in the series that come close to those. Uh, the briefcase in From Russia With Love is kind of cool. All the car gadgets in the DB5 from Goldfinger. You know, everyone says the car is their favorite tool. Can we talk about how weird it was that one of the gadgets in Honor Majesty's Secret Service was just a photocopier? Literally a photocopier. Then they had a harrowing time lifting it up with a crane and a spotter. But this was entertaining in the 1960s, people. A photocopier. Odd movie aside, Little Nelly the Gyrocopter from You Only Live Twice was great. The fact that Q had to go, spend a few hours unpacking, setting it up, testing and whatnot seemed... quaint compared to their instant kill watches and subatomic lasers as seen in the other films. Quality control from the government and James Bond movie. As much as I love Live and Let Die, running across the alligators was so dumb. Oh, 
and the cold open for four years eyes only literally had them dropping a dummy Blofeld off a helicopter. Just terrible. More, more, more memorable moments from Living Daylights. <laughs> There's the bit where he gets the um, <laughs> he gets the Russian guy and puts him in a big tube and shoots him through the uh, the gas works <laughs> into another country. You know that's one way to get people out. <laughs> There's the uh, the German milkman with his exploding milk bottles who <laughs> goes around killing people in a British country estate. And uh, one of the most famous bits is the scene where they are trying to escape down a mountain and they're sitting inside a cello case and Bond is using a huge cello to manoeuvre themselves left and right while they're trying to escape skiers chasing after them down a mountain. And it is just such a fun action scene. They rode a cello case down the mountain and slid under a gate check, if I remember. Ugh, some of these movies. And the bit at the end is probably one of the funniest moments in Bond, where as they're coming up to, I think it's the Swiss border, and he leans over to the girl, gives her the two passports, and says, hold these up. <laughs> and she holds them up, and as they're going through, he chucks the cello over the <laughs> over the barrier, catches it on the other side, and then shouts, we've got nothing to declare. And then the woman shouts out, apart from this cello. <laughs> and it's just like, Oh, it's just amazing. My favorite line by far in the franchise history is when uh, Bond is strapped to a table and Goldfinger's threatening to cut him in half with an industrial laser. Bond says, you expect me to talk? And he responds, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Classic. And then the iconic scene from this film is the battle when they're hanging out the back of the aeroplane on the crates that are like in some sort of like netting stuff and it's just flying around flying up and down and this is back in the days where you couldn't use CGI to replicate this stuff so God knows how they managed to make that scene it's just unfathomable but it is just amazing to watch it's so tense and so gripping and then there's the bit where he's finally there, the guy's hanging onto his foot and won't let go, so Bond starts slowly, you know, one by one, cutting the laces of his boot until it finally gives way and the guy just falls out of the aeroplane, screaming his head off. And as Bond comes into the pilot seat, what does he say? She says, what happened back there? And he goes, oh, he got the boot. And then he has to pull the plane up because they're about to crash into a, a massive cliff. <laughs> oh... So there are a lot of things that are kind of synonymous with James Bond, you know, car chases, exotic locales, beautiful women. Um, some of the cooler things I think that you kind of gravitate towards are uh, some of the creative ways they kill off bad guys. The quality of the villains kind of varies really dramatically, but the good ones are really good and the bad ones are really bad. Uh, you have some really interesting and some not so interesting henchmen a lot of times I think they try too hard same with the gadgets you got some really cool gadgets and some really not so cool gadgets uh, we'll talk about those a bit today um, very much looking forward to Bond 25 and seeing where the fran future of the franchise goes watch them all uh, even the bad ones even the ones that aren't real Bond movies like never say never again James Bond is fantastic 
Uh, Gadget's evil villains, over-the-top evil villains. The lairs, oh my gosh, secret lairs. I would watch all of the Bonds right now, start to finish. Right now, with the politics being how it is in America, I'm curious to see uh, how American audiences are going to view the African-British actress in this new James Bond. Are they going to accept her, like how uh, we celebrated with Black Panther? Or are they going to be more critical of her? Uh, For instance, like the actress who played Harriet in the new Harriet Tubman movie. Um, I don't know. We'll find out, but it's going to be an interesting development. You know, James Bond was always special to me, especially once I got back to see the old ones. It was, well, I mean, it started out as kind of a, an everyman type thing. Like, you could achieve this. You could, you know, go and be a secret agent. Uh, obviously, things have changed with film. Uh, every agent does parkour now, or they have some sort of special gift. But James Bond started out as... This man gives a lot for his country, and as he can see in return, his adventure and women and cars and yeah, it's since become more of just an action series. I believe even the Fast and the Furious franchise is basically like heist films and spy films now as it is. But I'll always have a special place in my heart for James Bond. We will talk more about the uh, superior <laughs> Daniel Craig films. Uh, moving up here, I'm sure, in future episodes. But, you know, the old ones, they might not be your cup of tea necessarily like mine. They, they might be a little too cheesy or too dated or just too goofy. Uh, or maybe you can't get over the fact that Sean Connery is like this abusive piece of garbage <laughs> in real life. Um, you know, depending on your opinions on people and how on their portrayals of the character, some you might love and some you might hate. Depends kind of, I guess, when you grew up with them. So, you know, whether it's Thunderball or Dr. No or Man with the Golden Gun or To Live and Let Die or Her Majesty's Secret Service, whatever your favorite is, you know, that's great. Whatever your least favorite is, that's fine. Uh, I think we can all agree that as the series moves forward, we're going to see a lot more changes and that might be good. It might be bad. We'll see. I expect probably more good than bad. Uh, but the new one looks great and we will get to see who the new Bond will be, I'm sure, in another year or so. And start the whole thing all over again. Podcasters Assemble Season 003 is a production of the We Can Make This Work Probably Podcast Network. Find more of our shows at probablywork.com and learn how to contribute to future episodes of Podcasters Assemble by looking us up on Twitter at Casters Assemble or joining our Discord server, link in the show notes. Submissions are always open. Thank you to everyone who was able to contribute to this episode. Be sure to check the show notes for links where you can find them all online. Thank you. This has been a presentation of the We Can Make This Work Probably Network. Follow us on Twitter at ProbablyWork for more of our questionable content. Also, we have a website called ProbablyWork.com. So at first I was going to do a real Cockney accent, like, Mission Briefing, good evening, 003. But I decided that probably wasn't the best way to go. (laughs) What the f*** is going on with Octopussy? Yeah, that's right, folks. You can't let me sit here.
do a podcast about James Bond and not mention Octopussy. <laughs> right. 